This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with more than 500 audio and video series on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more. The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming at thegreatcourses.com or on DVD and CD or via The Great Courses apps. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including writing creative nonfiction. For this limited time, 80% off offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us in the Weekly Standard is Bill Crystal. And Bill, every week we say, man, what a bad week for Hillary Clinton. I think she managed to have a still worse week this week. I think she did. And, I, and there's some sign in the polls that it's having an effect. Her disapproval is now, I think, just inched above her approval among the general uh, voter population, which is never good if you're going to be running for president, especially this early, because normally your disapprovals go up later during the campaign when people are attacking you. But she really hasn't been attacked, when you think about it, uh, in years, right? She was Secretary of State, then she was out of office. Some media criticism, but no actual sustained uh, assault on her. And yet her disapproval is above her approval. So in that respect, you've got to think not a great candidate for the Democrats. On the other hand, I don't know. People like us keep thinking it's, you know, it's all going to collapse, and it doesn't. And in the Quinnipiac poll this week, the one that got all the publicity because no Republican was above 10 percent, on the Democratic side, she, of course, was way ahead. What's interesting to me is in the Democratic-Republican matchup, when they asked the congressional ballot question, the generic congressional ballot, would you be inclined to vote for a Republican or Democrat for the House, uh, the Democrats were plus three, which means it's basically even. It was, a, it was all registered voters. Um, she they asked, are you for Hillary Clinton, or, and then they gave various Republican names. I think Rubio was the closest at four behind Hillary, and then it drifted down to 10, 11 behind. So at least in this poll, she's running better than the generic Democrat. And that strikes me as a, a word of caution to those of us who might hope and even right. think that she's ultimately a weak candidate, that right now, at least, she's doing a little better than the generic Democratic candidate. That, that's a good piece of analysis, but I, w- I wonder what is going to happen when people start becoming aware of the specifics of what she's done, and that's what's going to happen about a year from now, when all of the you know clutter is kind of out of the way, and you have one person talking. And to me, what jumped out was Saudi arms deal results in cash for Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's a simple message, and that is what happened. Yeah, and then there's other story about a charity that wanted to have Bill honor Bill Clinton and hoped he would come to their dinner, obviously, to try to help them raise money, but a very legit international charity. And basically, the woman who was trying to arrange this was told by the person at the Clinton Foundation, well, you have to give him $500,000 to be a speaker there, and then you might get him at your dinner. I mean, which they did. So... You know, I mean, really, that's, you know, that's these people have tens of millions of dollars, and they're, it's one thing to hit up, find public universities, that's bad enough, but maybe there's a lecture series, if they're not going to get it, someone else is going to get it, though not that much, or hitting up private businesses, well, okay, if Goldman Sachs wants to waste its money, they can, but hitting up charities that are trying to help poor people over in the third world, it's, it's a little unseemly, you know. Hey, i got to pay my bills. So just keep that in mind, okay? Uh, Good point. Yeah. Now, but you can't beat somebody with nobody. And one of the things that I keep hearing from Democrats is that the Republican field is a bunch of nobodies. There's nobody with the stature, standing, pizzazz of uh, Hillary Clinton. Is that whistling past the graveyard? Is that a legitimate point? Where are we? 
I think it's probably hopeful on their part. Of course, if you match up, I had this conversation with a liberal media type this week off camera. I was doing Morning Joe, and, and he said, well, it doesn't compare with the field of 1980, which had Bush, Baker, Reagan, Connolly, or 88, even with Bush, Dole, Kemp. But of course, these guys all look, in retrospect, they, you know, a lot of them look very impressive. They did have impressive careers. But you get a younger field, which is what the Republicans have now, and uh, it's more like Clinton in 92, Bush in 2000, Obama in 2008. And, hey, guess what? I guess those three did win the presidency, didn't they? And they're each, you know, the governors that the Republicans have are rather like Clinton in terms of age and experience, uh, more experience most. Well, it's similar to George W. Bush, maybe a little more experience, actually, in 2000. And certainly the senators are as experienced and more impressive and more experienced than uh, than Obama was in 2008. So I don't know. It doesn't seem to have hurt. didn't hurt those three, and they were the last two presidents we had. And I've got to say, you look at Walker, Rubio, Cruz, uh, the whole crew, Christie, um, and many others, and you, I think at least that's a pretty interesting, impressive group. And look, I think, uh, and I think they're going to do well in these debates and do well in public. And I, I think six months from now, the Democrats will pay a price for Hillary's dominance of the field, and Republicans will benefit from having a dozen or so attractive, presentable, interesting, often younger candidates. Uh, and yet, there's a, I mean, you say, you describe those candidates, like, what a great description. Then I think about who entered the race this week, George Pataki and Senator Rick Santorum, and two guys who the expiration date is well past, isn't it? Probably, but the Democrats have people who are older than they and whose expiration date you'd think might be well past, and they seem to be to be running. I guess they're in office now, uh, Sanders, or even conceivably people like Biden and Kerry who would love to run if Hillary ever stumbles. Uh, Hillary herself, definitely. I mean, so, you know, uh, everyone's entitled to run because uh, Santorum got a lot of votes in 2012. I think I would argue that that was a sign of unhappiness with Romney right. more than a sign of enthusiasm for, for Rick uh, Santorum. But he ran a good campaign. He'll take a shot. Um, Pataki's sitting there. He was governor for three terms. He left office with Jeb Bush, left office. And he's probably thinking to himself, why exactly is Jeb Bush a frontrunner in this race? And I'm just a nobody. I was governor of New York. Pretty good governor. But look, life's unfair. And some of these guys will discover, you know what, there isn't much of a market for them. Someone who's in the second tier now will move up into the right. first tier or close to it. And, um, you know, they'll all have a chance to make their case. Well, at the risk of angering the throngs of Pataki supporters out there, Bill, <laughs> I've made my listeners a pledge on my radio show in Atlanta, I will never mention Governor Pataki's name under any circumstances uh, because I just don't want to waste people's time with things that are completely irrelevant to the campaign. Am I being unfair? I think you're, you'll only you, you, you'll only be being unfair if Pataki begins to take off. If he begins to take off, you will start mentioning him. And, but the way he would have to take off, obviously, would be to have a distinctive issue, a distinctive mm-hmm. message, a distinctive selling point. I mean, you can't just show up and say, I was a good governor 10 years ago, uh, but I haven't really been involved much in public life since. You have to have something that's different. And, mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I think someone like Carly, well, look at the ones in private sector who haven't been elected who have taken off some. I mean, Trump, he's got his own shtick. I don't think it ends up going anywhere. But he'll get his 5%, 6% in the polls. He'll be in the debate if he, if he does run. Uh, Fiorina, who um, we saw when we were at the Broad War and who is impressive and is the only woman. Republicans don't believe in identity politics, but you can't close your eyes to these kinds of things. And she's attacking Hillary. I, I come back to that a lot, incidentally. The, the media is obsessed with the fact that, well, she's attacking Hillary because she's a woman. But uh, other women could run and not attack Hillary. And, of course, the men who are running 
could attack Hillary, and that's not happening. And so she's filling a huge vacuum. I actually don't know why some of these other Republicans don't think they're allowed to attack Hillary. They're all busy attacking each other. They're busy laying out their plans. Um, but, you know, the simplest way to become popular with a Republican audience is to deliver effective attacks on the likely Democratic nominee. It's not a personal thing with Hillary. It's just that's the way politics works, you know. But the others seem to have forgotten this kind of elementary rule. It is an odd juxtaposition where you've got Republicans seeming to almost cross the street to avoid, uh, you know, criticizing Hillary Clinton, her record, even as the news is breaking about, you know, terrible ethical problems. And then you've got Carla Fiorina, who goes right to the town, right to the hotel in Columbia, South Carolina, which I know very well, standing outside saying, bring it on, Hillary. And I, my uh, Internet and email have been full of people going, this Carly Fiorina person has got my attention. Yeah, I very much agree, and I think it's a mistake of the others. Not just not attacking Hillary, but, but sort of staying away from certain issues because the liberal media have decided they're a little, I don't know, stale or controversial, or there are a couple of wacky people who talk about them. So no one talks about Benghazi. As we learn more and more about the utter fiasco of Hillary's, Hillary's Libya policy and the genuine deception that was engaged in as well. And the same is true on other issues. I, I think they're, I, this is my editorial this week in the magazine, they're, they're, they're being too passive in general. The Republican congressional leadership doesn't want to offend anyone. They just want to kind of, they keep saying, put points on the board, whatever that means. They're playing kind of a prevent defense here in the first quarter when they're not really ahead. Uh, some of the candidates are busy jockeying, and that's understandable. They're raising money. They want to be careful. They don't want to make a mistake. But as a result, it's getting a little homogenous and a little uh, uh, not very distinctive in their messages, which does leave an opening, I think. There's a reason in that Quinnipiac poll no one's above 10 percent, which is went above 10 percent. Rubio went above 10 percent. Bush started above 10 percent. And I, I like all three, especially Rubio and, and Walker, really. But none of them is quite, you know, uh, capitalized on that little bump they got when they announced right. the case of Rubio uh, or in Walker's case when he had that publicity after giving the good speech in Iowa. And it tells me that there is room for the Fiorinas of the world to come up and say, hey, I've got a more interesting message. And as you say, I think people are responding to that. Uh, one last thing, and that is the announcement about what the debates are going to be like with CNN doing two debates, a first-tier and second-tier debate, Fox simply doing a you're either in the top ten in the polls or you're not debate, which brings the prospect of me being forced to watch Donald Trump on the stage yeah. while real, live, viable candidates don't make it on. I, I think both of those approaches are mistaken. Uh, do you agree? And what, if anything, should the Republican Party or the candidates themselves do about it? I agree. I think it shows a kind of uh, mistake on the part of the Republican National Committee. Uh, they've got their whole theory of 2012. There were too many debates. There were too many candidates. We've got to reduce the clutter. It's all backwards. The mistake of 2012 was it wasn't a very good field, and Romney sort of just, uh, ended up outlasting the rest of the field. And that wasn't because there were too many debates. There were many more debates in 2008 on the Democratic side with Hillary and Obama. didn't hurt Obama, last I looked, in, in the general election. Um, I think they should go to, you know, draw, I mean, obviously they have to draw the line somewhere, but they should not exclude sitting governors, sitting senators, people who were longtime governors or senators, and serious private sector uh, folks like Carly Fiorina or Ben Carson, or Trump, I guess, just because he's got some numbers in the polls. That gets you to about 14, 15 candidates, 16, it sounds like a lot, but fine, have two debates, draw straws, mix them up, have eight people each. Uh, You talk privately to network people and even to the RNC about this. Well, people don't want to watch two debates. You know, it's hard enough to get them to sit through one. I think that totally misunderstands the character of the Republican electorate this year. They are eager for information. They are eager to see these folks. They'll watch three hours one night. 
they'll watch an hour and a half back-to-back two nights. Um, look at the turnout at these events that's, that's happening almost every weekend when the candidates show up. It's very high. Or I gather the turnout even when one candidate shows up. And you get emails from each campaign saying, whoa, Carly Fiorina drew turnout people in South Carolina. Whoa, uh, Scott Walker drew X right. number here. But it turns out they're all drawing a lot because people are very interested, curious, and don't have a strong view ahead of time as to which one should be the nominee or which three or four they should consider seriously. They want to see them all. So I'm very much in favor of, a, of, of, of you know, open debates, at least for the first three or four months. Let them all debate. Have it in two tiers. Don't get in the business of excluding people right. and then offending some of their supporters or, or giving them the opportunity to show up outside the TV studio and make the story about, gee, uh, Rick Perry, the 14-year governor of Texas, or Rick Santorum, who got to several million votes last time, or Carly Fiorina, the one woman in the race, or John Kasich, the current governor of Ohio and former congressman. One of these people is excluded from the debate. And that becomes the story instead of letting people enjoy and benefit from the debate. Uh, common sense, which means, of course, it will never happen. Exactly. Bill Crystal, thanks, right. <laughs> thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, Michael. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.